Thank you, Dave, very much, and good evening, reality. Thank you. Thank you for so many of you coming out uh, on a Monday evening to talk about a topic that clearly you care about. Uh, we all care about it because dealing with conflict, dealing with difficult conversations, is something that we face every day. We face it in our personal lives. We face it in our professional lives. We face it in our church life. And as Dave mentioned, this reality is to be an authentic community. And when you have an authentic community, you're going to have disagreements. You're going to have arguments. You're going to have hurt feelings. And how you work through that, the process you use to go through that is vitally important to having a healthy community and to being a healthy person. So tonight we come and we talk about this subject. Uh, it's a subject which I am passionate about. Uh, I came out of the womb as a difficult conversation. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by that, and you'll see that that's really pretty accurate. Uh, my father was a Palestinian Arab. My mom was an Israeli Jew. So right from the literal get-go, uh, I was a mass of conflict. And right from the get-go, as I was growing up, and I heard my mom's relatives talk about the terrorist Palestinians, and I had to defend the Palestinians. And I heard my dad's relatives talk about the oppressive, invading Israelis. I had to defend the Israelis. So I learned early on growing up the importance of looking at both sides and understanding that different people who feel passionate see reality differently and how important it is to have learning conversations to try and understand the other and not categorize and demonize. And in today's society, and you see it all around us, you see it in our politics, you see it in the course of our civil, or better said, maybe uncivil discourse, how when you have someone that you disagree with, oftentimes you are put into a box, you are demonized, you are categorized in some way. And the art and beauty and importance, particularly in a democracy, of having a give and take between and among people who disagree very strongly and very emotionally on topics is a skill, is a heart outlook and a mindset that we must regain. And we certainly must regain it as a church. As Jesus calls us, as Dave properly said, to be a reconciling force in our society to be a force for peace, a force for understanding, a force to bring people together as opposed to splitting them apart. Um, before we start, let me start us in prayer. Lord, I thank you for tonight and I thank you for all of these good people that have taken time out to come here tonight to learn more about how to be better conflict resolvers to learn more about how you want to view us and empower us 
to be reconcilers and peacemakers in this world that so desperately needs this influence. Lord, help me to speak words that are your words. Help your message to penetrate into each heart here. This is a touchy subject. It's a subject that is filled with emotion and filled oftentimes with hurt and fear. Lord, work in the midst of that and draw people closer to you as we discuss these very important subjects. Amen. So there's going to be two main sources tonight that I'm going to be drawing from, among others. One of them is this book that Dave mentioned earlier, Difficult Conversations. Uh, it's a book that I wish I was joking around with the staff earlier. It's a book that I wish I was getting royalties on because I use this with all of my clients. I use it as a part of my curriculum when I teach my course at Pepperdine, and I don't make a dime off of this. Uh, but it is a super, and it's a very important resource book. It's not the kind of book that I want you to just read through and check the box and say, yeah, I read that. This is a book that you want to have on your desk or on your study or wherever you have it and be continually referring back to it. It is a tremendous, tremendously insightful and uh, easy to, not easy to apply, but important to apply uh, book. The second book that we're going to be uh, drawing from tonight is this one, which I recommend even more highly than the first one. And I don't get any royalties from this one either. Now that would be something. Um, so the Lord has a lot to say about reconciliation and about the importance of that, the importance of forgiveness, and we're going to be talking a lot about that. So let's start getting into it, and you'll see we've got a lot of content, and you have these worksheets. If you don't have the physical copy of the worksheet, please go on your phone and get online and get to where this is online, because this is not going to just be a sit for two hours and listen to the talking head. This is really designed to help you to look at three conflicts that you're going to identify and this, these sheets don't go to anybody. We're not going to collect them. These are for your own benefit. Three conflicts that you currently are involved in that you want to understand better and hopefully do something about. And so as I'm speaking about these various tools and the heart set and mindset as we go on, I really want you to be applying it. I'm going to be pausing at various times to allow you to write on your sheet or type on your phone how that particular tool can be used with regard to that particular conflict. This is all about application. As Dave said, this is all about practice, practice, practice. And when you learn new tools or you learn new habits, at the beginning, it's always going to be awkward, isn't it? I mean, if it was easy, we'd be doing it right now. And so when you have new tools that you have, understand it's going to be awkward at the beginning. Understand you're not going to go in a straight line like this of always doing this. It's going to be a couple steps like this, and then back a little bit, and a couple steps more, and then back a little bit. But the direction, if you stick with it, you will see a remarkable change in your attitude and your willingness to engage in conflict in a healthy fashion. 
and you'll see the results and impact on your relationships and on the state of your heart as you move forward. So use this. Take notes and use it with regard to your um, particular conflicts. So if we're going to talk about uh, difficult conversations, uh, an important point is, so what is a difficult conversation? Well, this is an example of a difficult conversation. I think a little bit more difficult for the mouse than the cat, but it's a difficult conversation. And sometimes we find ourselves in conflict situations where we feel like the mouse, and sometimes we feel like the cat. Uh, and in either case, handling that conversation well uh, is important, whether we're the person in a position of power or we're the person without the power. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. A difficult conversation is anything you find hard to talk about. It's that, that feeling that you have as you think about doing it that you feel uncomfortable or awkward or fearful as you think about it. It's kind of like you know it when you see it. Um, yeah, it's an old, uh, back to my lawyer days about the Supreme Court justice says, what's pornography? You know it when you see it. You know, you know, you feel it when you, you know it when you're feeling it, that I'm about to have a difficult conversation. Or if I chose to talk to this person about this, it would be a difficult conversation. And sometimes you feel like that. Um, when does it occur? It occurs when we feel vulnerable or when our self-esteem is involved. We feel like we're opening up ourselves to either being shot down or told that we're not a good person or told that we're not competent or told that we're not loved. That's what leads to this feeling of this is going to be a difficult conversation. It also happens when the, uh, the topic uh, is and the issues are very important and very controversial and the outcome is uncertain. Dave rattled off some very important, very controversial subjects. And when you engage in those type of discussions and you don't know what the outcome is going to be and you have strong feelings about it and you know the person you're talking to has strong feelings about it and their feelings and opinions could be diametrically opposed to you, that's going to be a difficult conversation. Particularly when we care deeply about these issues and the people with whom we are discussing it. You can have a discussion with someone that you don't know very well, and it's a little easier to have that discussion. When you have somebody that you care deeply about, and you're talking about an issue that is real touchy, and you know that not only is the discussion of the issue going to be touchy, but the state of the relationship is at play, that particularly gives you that feeling of this is a difficult conversation. As Dave said, living in healthy, authentic community requires having difficult conversations. Conflict, tension, disagreement, and emotional pain are completely unavoidable 
when you are in authentic community, when you're in a family. These sort of situations are unavoidable when you're being healthy and when you're being authentic. And the culture around us divides, belittles, demeans people with whom we have disagreements. That's the cultural standard that we are living in right now. In contrast to that, Jesus followers are called to a different standard, a very different standard. We are called to be peacemakers. We are called to be reconcilers. We are called to be the sweet aroma of Jesus to the people around us. That doesn't happen if we are belittling, demeaning, and dehumanizing those with whom we disagree. So let's take a look a little bit at what this Jesus standard is. It's incredible when you really go through the Bible, and the Bible is packed with passages about the importance of reconciliation and forgiveness. And to just give you a sense of it, I just pulled out a few passages. First one is, this is Jesus talking in Matthew. And look at what this verse says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, in God's economy, in God's view of the kingdom, that reconciliation is the most important sacrifice, the most important act you can do to worship him. Not the gift at the altar. That's nice, but leave it there. You go first and you reconcile with your brother or sister. That's the attitude that God has in the Bible and wants us to have as the Jesus standard. In Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, another passage that you all are familiar with. You know, you take the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly enough to help your brother or sister take the splinter out of their eye. Again, that's God's view of how to deal with conflict in a healthy fashion. And that is, take the log out of your own eye. Stop trying to focus on what you view to be the log in your brother's eye. Take the log out of your own eye. Why? So you can see clearly to help your brother take the splinter out of his eye. Forgiveness. Forgiveness in the Bible, and we're going to talk a lot more about this later on. Forgiveness in Jesus' view is not an optional sort of thing. And I know that's a controversial statement to make. And believe me, in my own life and in the people with whom I deal, forgiveness is a very difficult painful subject, and it is not easy to do. In some cases, it's excruciatingly hard to even consider doing it. And yet, Jesus calls us to forgive as we are forgiven, to forgive as we are forgiven, and we'll talk more about that later. 
And the final thing he talks about in just this short little excerpts I've taken out is the importance of being kind and compassionate to one another as we deal with each other. That's how we're called to deal with each other, kind and compassionate. Does that ring responsively as the way that our culture asks us or calls us to deal with people? Kind and compassionate? Kind of like the antithesis of kind and compassionate. Harsh and judgmental. Our standard as Jesus followers is completely different. Kind and compassionate. And that's what we're called to do. So the purpose today is threefold. It's to help equip you to have difficult conversations and to, to give you tools to face and resolve conflict in a healthy way. And again, I want to stress, apply these tools as we're going along tonight to the specific conflicts that you are going to be writing down in just a minute. And how we address conflict transforms us one way or the other. That's the reality. If we choose to avoid conflict or if we choose to deal with conflict in a very destructive way, that shapes who we are. If we, on the other hand, choose to address and deal with conflict in a healthy way, that also shapes us. And it shapes us in a way that draws us closer to God, closer to people, softens us, opens us up to be the reconcilers and peacemakers that he wants us to be. So let's get into it. Take a look at your worksheet. And I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to write down three current examples of a conflict in your life. Okay, it's on page six of your handouts. It's on the back page. Or go online. Just jot down a few words that will remind you of this particular conflict, whatever it might be. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your social circles. Maybe it's at church. Maybe it's at work. Whatever it might be. OK. So as you've written those three down, keep those, oops, keep those in mind as we're going through this. And as I'm talking about these various tools, think in your mind, how does that apply to this, these three conflicts? How do these apply to these three conflicts? Don't let this be an academic, head knowledge sort of evening. You've taken valuable time out of your busy schedules to come here. Make it worthwhile. Make it be an evening where you take a different path moving forward with regard to these specific conflicts and others that you're going to be facing day in and day out. OK, so if we're talking about how to deal with conflict constructively, first thing we got to do is define conflict. The definition that I use is it's a disagreement or action through which the parties involved perceive a threat to their interests, feelings, or concerns. Just a couple points on this. It's a disagreement or action. So it could be that we're talking about an issue and we're having a strong disagreement about it, and that leads to our conflict. Or our conflict could be caused by something that I did that really hurt you, embarrassed you, 
Whatever it did, it was an action, and that caused a conflict. So either a disagreement or an action, and it always involves a perceived threat to my interests or feelings or concerns. A perception, my perceived threat. It may not be an actual threat in the objective reality, but I perceive it to be a threat. And when I perceive it to be a threat, it's my reality. And different people can have different perceptions and have a sense that there are different realities. And I talked a little bit earlier about the Palestinians and the Israelis. Different perceptions, different perceived realities that are as real to the one as they are to the other, and yet very different. So when we, when we face conflict, there are different styles that we employ. And these are the five main styles that are employed with conflict. Each one of them, at the appropriate time, is a good style and a healthy style to use. None of these, in and of themselves, is the wrong style to use, or a bad style. All of them are good styles. The problem we have, as people, is that oftentimes we will not use the right style in the right situation, okay? We will avoid when we shouldn't avoid, or we'll compete when we should be collaborating, okay? But, that, but in certain situations, each one of these is the right approach to take. For example, let's talk about competing. It's pretty straightforward. It's kind of a win-lose sort of an approach to conflict resolution. Now, if you were at a car dealer trying to buy a car, you're not really in the accommodating mode of conflict resolution, right? You're not in the collaborating style of conflict. You are in the competing style of conflict resolution, and in that context, it's perfectly appropriate. I want to win, I want to pay you nothing, and I want you to get <laughs> give me that car, okay? That's the, that's the mode in that, in that conflict situation. In other situations, completely inappropriate to have that competing sort of attitude. I have to win, you have to lose. One of us is gonna win, one of us is gonna lose, and it ain't gonna be me that loses. The second style is accommodating. And that is, I'm gonna give up my interest for your interest. Sometimes that's very appropriate and very important to have that sort of an approach. Other times it is not okay. And it simply allows me to be run over it allows me to feel that I'm not being heard. It allows me to feel like my feelings don't matter and what I think doesn't matter and I'm all, only just giving because the other person wants the other way and I'm, I'm gonna just accommodate. So certain times it's good, certain times it's not good. Avoiding, you know, you think when you, when you see this on the screen, you probably think avoiding conflict, that's really bad. Well, sometimes it's not bad. Sometimes you're in a situation where to engage in conflict at that particular moment would be very disruptive of what, what's going on around you. And you simply have to bite your tongue and wait for the right time and the right context in which to bring it up. On the other hand, many of us avoid conflict because we're fearful. And we simply don't want to have conflict, so we just bury our head in the sand and we avoid it. And, and don't try and pick the right time. We simply want to avoid it. And conflict avoidance, 
other than specifically for certain uh, situations, is not a healthy way to deal with conflict. Then you have the compromising style. And again, there are very good times when compromising is the appropriate style. We want to split the difference. We don't really have the amount of time necessary to collaborate fully. So, you know, this is okay. It's, it's sort of important to me. It's not that important. And it's more important to you. And it's not that important. So we'll just compromise. We'll split the difference. Or we'll come up with something that isn't very creative. But it just is a compromise. And then let's just move on. And sometimes that's a good. And sometimes it isn't good. Then collaborating. Collaborating on its face, you think, boy, collaborating is absolutely the best way to resolve conflict. And in many instances, it is absolutely the best way to try and resolve conflict. We're going to work together. I'm going to try and understand your interests. You're going to try and understand my interests. And together, we're going to try and problem solve. We're going to collaborate in how we're going to deal with this conflict that we're engaged in. Other times, though, there isn't time for that. We don't have the situation where we can really explore deeply what you think and what I think and stuff. And we have to act more quickly. And one of these other styles has to come into play because of the exigencies of the situation. So now, exercise two. On your worksheet, I'll give you just a couple minutes to do this. For the three example conflicts you have there, note what sort of conflict style you are using for each of those three conflicts. And they may well be different. And if they are different, think about why they are different. How many of you found that with regard to those three conflicts, you use different conflict styles? Take a look at that. How many of you found that you use the same conflict style? Okay, there's no judgment of the right answer or wrong answer. It's for you to understand that about yourself and think through, is this really the appropriate style to use in this context for this particular conflict? Or would a different style be better and more effective and more healthy for me to use with regard to this conflict? We're now going to take a look at one, the first of five tools that we're going to be talking about tonight. This one's a very important tool, and that is having learning conversations instead of message delivery conversations. And what's the key to having a learning conversation? It is definitely a mindset. And it's a mindset of curiosity. I want to understand why you believe what you believe. I want to understand why you acted the way you acted. I want to understand. I am curious. I am not going to go in immediately with a message delivery, which is, this is my way, and this is the right way, or this is the answer. There's no curiosity in that. There's no learning in that. And it is not a helpful approach in trying to resolve conflict in a healthy way. A learning conversation, understanding where the other is coming from, is critically important if you want to have a healthy approach to resolving conflict. To do that, 
You have to be present. You have to be present. You can't have a learning conversation, a good learning conversation, if you're not really focused on the person that you're dealing with or the situation you're dealing with. And we all have a million distractions going on in our mind. We're talking to someone here and we're thinking about the meeting that we have in an hour or the fact that I just had a fight with my wife that morning or the kids' issues here or there or the fact that the bills aren't getting paid and I'm really concerned about that. All those thoughts are swirling around our mind when we're talking to someone. And what we need to do is to push those to one side and really be present so that we can try and really understand what is going on. Phrases that are helpful to you in trying to have a learning conversation are phrases like, help me understand, tell me more, can you give me an example? All of those are questions and phrases that will allow you to engage the other person in a learning conversation. And you'll see as we go through this that all of these tools that we're going to be talking about are designed to try and push you toward having learning conversations rather than pure message delivery conversations. And that doesn't mean that there aren't times when a message delivery is important and needs to be a part of a conversation. I'm not saying that. These aren't like message delivery is bad. That's ridiculous. Sometimes messages are important to be delivered, and there will be messages delivered in the course of a learning conversation. But it's just the mindset of, am I really curious? Am I really wanting to know why the other person did this, or thinks this, or believes this, or am I not thinking that way at all? So we talked about the importance of presence. And here's an example of someone who's believed to be a very good listener and is present. You decide. Have you ever spent like five minutes with him? He's totally self-centered and insensitive. They just don't go together. I mean, she's my best friend. She has these emotional needs he can't meet. Remember what she went through with Brad? Just like awful. And now he's the one acting needy? He's at the 50. He's at the 40. He's going to go all the way. Shots and breaking loose. The rookie's on fire. This kid's having a huge first half. It's just incredible. You're such a great listener. Thanks. Okay, how many times have we been or experienced the Budweiser kind of listener where we either are faking the fact that we're listening by nodding our head as we're thinking about everything else in the world except what that person is talking about, or we feel that that's the way the person is really receiving us. Presence requires focus. And that focus is so important to having a learning conversation. Okay, let's go on to tool number two. Okay, I want to have a learning, I want to have a difficult conversation. But how do I start it? I mean, I've got my teeth clenched, I've got my stomach all in knots, I'm going to have this difficult conversation. How do I start it? When you have a difficult conversation, you want to begin with the third story. Okay, what is the third story? Well, 
The first story is what my version of the truth is and reality. The second story is the other person's perspective on what the truth is or the reality. And when you start a difficult conversation or the other person starts a difficult conversation purely by laying out their perspective or you lay out your perspective, that's you're starting with the first story or you're starting with the second story. And what happens? Immediately defensiveness comes up. I did not say that. I did not mean that. You know that I didn't do that. You are exaggerating. Immediately it triggers defensiveness. So how do you avoid that or at least minimize the chances of that? You start with the third story. So what is the third story? The third story is what an impartial third party would describe when they look at the situation right in front of them. You've got uh, Sally and Mary that are in dispute with each other, okay? And the mediator knows, or this third party knows, that they're going to first identify what the common interests are and what the parties agree upon, and then summarize the differences in a way that doesn't bias against one person or the other, and create safety for a discussion that then is going to flow. So Mary and Sally are having a dispute. Mary and Sally are really good friends. The third party looking at this would say, Mary and Sally are really good friends. Uh, they, are, they are having and have been having a real dispute about X, whatever X is. Mary believes this. Sally believes this. Can we have a discussion where I can understand more about what your position is and you can understand more about what my position is and then let's try and move forward in a way that preserves and enhances our friendship. That's the third story approach. It is the view of a, of a mediator who would be looking at this situation, objectively trying to to describe the situation, describe the common interests, as well as describe the differences, but not in a way that skews it in favor of one person or the other. One of the great benefits of using this approach as well is you can't think of the third story unless you calm yourself down. When you are all fired up with how right you are, the last thing on your mind is to think about what the common interests are <laughs> and to decide what would be a fair representation of your position and a fair representation of the other person's position and a desire to try and work through it. So it forces you again to step back and say, hold on, I want this conversation to have the highest chance of likelihood of being successful. And what I need to do is step back. What are the common interests we have here? Why, does it, why do I care here? What, what ties us together? And then what is a fair way to state what my view is? What's a fair way to state what their view is? And then I want to invite having a learning conversation. So I want to see if we can 
use an example here. Uh, uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for a volunteer from the audience. How's that? Huh? How many hands are going to go up for wanting to come up and help the group take a look at what the third story might look like in a particular situation? Come on, don't all raise your hands at the same time. I see one there. Do I see any other hands? Oh, I see one here up front. Yes, ma'am, you in the green shirt. Come on up. Candace, can, can you give her a hand? This is a... Hi. Hi. Are you a little... Oop, do you have that on? Is it on? It's on. Are you a little nervous? Yeah, a little. Good, because I'm going to embarrass you terribly right now in front of all of these people. I'm going to embarrass you terribly. Uh, what's your name? Debbie Zachariah. Debbie? Oh, Debbie Zachariah. <laughs> this beautiful blonde, this beautiful woman is my wife of the last, last 42 years. So we have had plenty of our share of difficult conversation, some of which went well and some of which didn't go so well, but we're still together after 42 years and I love her more than I did when we first married. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about a real life difficult conversation that we had this past weekend, okay? Uh, and we have permission from our daughter to share this. Uh, we have a teenage daughter with whom we've had quite a few challenges. And the most recent challenge was that she greatly abused uh, using her phone. And so we restricted her phone usage to two hours a day uh, in a common area of the house. And the issue arose because this past Saturday was her prom night. And it was an all day and evening and then overnight, because in fact, we live in Folsom, and it was happening here in the city in the bay on a cruise. So she was gonna be spending the night. So she came to her mom and to me and said, I would really like to have my phone. So we will uh, play out here what the first story uh, looks like we disagreed on how to deal with this situation. So if we were to approach this discussion with the first story approach or the second story approach, let's take a look at what that might look like. Deb. Michael, are you kidding me? What are you thinking? After her egregious abuse of that phone, are you kidding? What? What in the, how in the world could you ever let her use the phone for a whole day again? Thank really? You. Thank you. <laughs> okay. The flip side of this is the right story. This is <laughs> Debbie. We've had so many issues with this wonderful daughter of ours. And our relationship, this relationship is frayed in many ways. She's going to be in the company of the mother of her best friend the whole time. 
The chances of her being able to abuse this phone is very, very slim. This is such an important occasion to her. Let's just make this as a way of building additional bridges to her and allow her to do this. Okay? So that's my version of it. Okay? So neither of those is going to lead to a, a good resolution here because Debbie is then going to fire back, are you kidding me? What are the way she means? So that, that can just go on spinning a cycle here. So see, she gets hot even thinking about it. Okay, so what would the third story look like here and what did it look like in this case? What's the common interest? Common interest is I love this woman and I've loved this woman for a long time and one of the keys in our marriage is harmony and harmony and unity in raising our kids. So that is a very strong common interest that we identified as we walked into this difficult conversation. And we can agree on that. We can agree on the common interest, and we can agree that we both want to raise this daughter well and make decisions that are in her best interest. Then we can summarize the differences fairly. Debbie, you believe she shouldn't have the phone because she's abused it in the past, and there's no guarantee she won't do it again. I believe that in this case, the chances of her abusing it are very small, and it would be a nice gesture and an effort to rebuild a little bit of a relationship that is really afraid right now. Can we have a discussion about this? I'd really like to understand more your perspective and make sure I understand it, and I'd like you to understand my perspective, and then let's work together to try and come to a way to deal with this. Can we do that? Okay. Okay. And in fact, we did do that. Debbie, talk about what we happened. We did do that. We talked it through. Michael laid out a little more of his side. I laid out a little bit more of what I thought could be abuses. Um, and we came to the agreement that she should not have a phone. <laughs> and for... For any of you men out there that know, want to know the secret to a 42-year marriage, that's it. Happy wife, happy life. So that's, that's another one of the tools. It isn't on the screen, but is it for Thanks. Okay, give her a hand. I'll give one more example of a difficult uh, conversation situation where the third story would make a huge difference. I'm going to make this totally up. In fact, I'm going to use two of our granddaughter's names. But I have a feeling that this probably is a situation that may arise, or if it hasn't, it will arise. And that is that Bailey and Paisley are close friends, very close friends, and they're members of a community group. And Paisley announces uh, to her friend that she's decided to move in with her boyfriend. And Bailey is very upset by this and is trying to figure out how do I, how do I have this discussion? I can't believe she's going to do this. I can't believe that she thinks this is right. So she can go in with guns blazing. 
it's going to get her nowhere, right? It's going to get defensiveness. It's going to be, stop parenting me. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I'm an adult. I make my own decisions. I think this is perfectly fine. It's going to lead nowhere. So what has a chance of leading to a discussion that really can get you somewhere? And that is, go through what's on the screen there. Common interest. Paisley, we are good friends. And our friendship is critically important to both of us, I know. And we are both followers of Jesus. And we are members of this community group in an effort to help us draw closer to God and help others in their journey as well. And you have a, you've announced a decision that you want to live with your boyfriend. And you know that I have a position that I don't like that decision. And I want us to have a discussion about this. I really want to listen and understand more from you what your thinking is, how you arrived at this decision. And I would like very much for you to hear my perspective on it and my take on this. And then together, I want us to figure out how we're going to move forward with our friendship and with ensuring that we move forward protecting our friendship and on our journey as Christ followers. Now, is that going to guarantee that the conversation is going to go great? No. But does it maximize the chances of that conversation going better than it otherwise would have? Absolutely it does. Because it allows for two people to get into a discussion that is very touchy in a way that is fair and as safe as possible and identifies the common interest which says, we ought to really try and listen to each other and figure out if there's a way to move forward that can accomplish that. So now, on your note sheet at the top of page two, I want you to write out, again, very briefly, what you think could be the third story for one of your conflicts. And if in the short time I give you, you can do it for two or three of your conflicts, great. But I at least want you to do it for one of your conflicts. And again, going back to what the criteria are, these are the criteria for your third story. Okay? I know I'd love to give you more time, but I need to keep us moving forward. As you wrote that down, did it give you a little bit of a different perspective, a little bit of a different view of how you might approach this conflict? If it did, raise your hand. Okay? Good. Now, use it or something like it with regard to that conflict. Don't go in with guns blazing and think that that's going to lead to a result other than defensiveness and further entrenchment in your, your conflict situation. So now let's go on to tool number three. It is absolutely essential if you want to have a difficult conversation and do it in a way that is going to maximize the chance of having it go well. And it's absolutely essential if you want to ensure understanding. And I feel so strongly about it that I'm saying if you only take away one thing from today in terms of the tools that we're talking about, 
this is the most important thing to take away. So why, what is it and why is it so important? Reflecting back is paraphrasing back to the person what you understood them to say without judgment. Under its bolded, it's italicized, without judgment. And then checking to confirm a correct understanding, again, italicized and bolded, before defending yourself. And it does not mean you agree. So, and let me just move on to what acknowledging is, and then we're going to talk about them together. Acknowledging goes right along with reflecting back, and it is telling the other person what you believe to be the emotion they are expressing when they're saying whatever they're saying, and then checking to confirm that you have understood or perceived that emotion correctly. Okay, so let's go back and talk about reflecting back and acknowledging. It's paraphrasing back. It is not parroting back. And it is really important the tone you use when you reflect back to them. So what I hear you saying is, blah, 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 blah. Do I have that right? Or anything approaching a mocking sort of thing because what they're saying is so outrageous and so wrong. I mean, how in the world could they believe that that's in fact what happened or in fact that's right? Absolutely counterproductive, obviously. It needs to be paraphrased back sincerely with words along the lines of, so what I heard you say was blah, 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 paraphrasing it back as closely as you can without parroting it, and at the end of that saying, did I get that right? Is that right? Did I understand you correctly? And they might say, yes, you did. Or they might say, you understood part of it, but you didn't get right this other part. So then you say, okay, so help me understand that part better. Say it to me again or differently. And then you paraphrase back to them again. And you acknowledge what emotion you think they are emitting when they're talking to you. So I, what I understood you to say was da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. And when you're saying it to me, my sense is you are really frustrated. Or you're really sad. Or you're really angry. Or you're really joyful or you're really expectant as you're saying it to me. And you're checking in with them, and they are telling you whether you have understood them or not. The one thing, particularly when I go over this with my clients, and that book is uh, required reading for all of my clients, the Difficult Conversations book. I wish I could require the Bible as required reading, but I can't, um, is I never want to hear my clients say, I understand what you're saying. I mean, how, how often do you hear that from someone? You, you're, you're talking to them, and immediately out of their mouth is, or maybe even before you're done, I understand where you're going with that. I understand. Well, you don't understand. And you certainly aren't showing respect to the person with, to whom you are speaking, or who is speaking to you, when you're either cutting them short or assuming you understand what they're saying and you're certainly not acknowledging their emotion. 
And so that's why often you'll be in a conversation where the person repeats it five or ten times. And you say, you're saying the same thing over and over again. You know, I mean, you've said it now ten times. How many more times do you want to say it? I understand what you're saying. Well, the person is repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, because they don't know you understood. In fact, they don't believe you understood it. The only way to ensure understanding in a conversation is to ensure that you reflect back to them, you acknowledge the emotion that you think they're emitting, and then have them let you know that you've understood it. And if you're talking to someone and they don't naturally want to reflect back because they haven't read the book or they're not good communicators, period, and you want to ensure that you've been understood, you can say, you know, I've said a lot of things uh, just now. It would be really helpful to me to make sure I maybe said them clearly or maybe I, I didn't say them clearly. Could you just let me know what you think I was saying or what you think I was trying to communicate to you? So you're inviting a reflecting back on your own statements to ensure that they understand it. One thing that you find in these situations that will often happen is that you'll reflect back to someone what they said, and they'll say, yes, you know, that is what I said, but when I hear you say it back to me, that's not exactly what I mean. So what I mean is blah, blah, blah. So not only does it help ensure that you understand what they said, it ensures that the person who said it understands what they said and is allowed a chance to correct or change it to more accurately reflect what they want to communicate. So this is absolutely essential. And to do reflecting back, what does it require? We go back to real presence. You've got to be present. If you're distracted and thinking about all the other stuff or you're watching a football game behind the person who's talking to you, you can't possibly reflect back accurately what they're saying. So it's a great discipline for forcing you to be present. And a lot of times it's not easy for us to do this. This will be a great discipline to force you to be present in that situation. And you will find that in situations involving a lot of high emotion, this sort of an approach takes the temperature down dramatically. It takes it down dramatically. And it, it takes it down without you having to agree with the other person. They could be saying the most outrageous things in the world. And you're reflecting back and you're saying, I'm not saying I that I agree with this. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. This is what I understand you to be saying. Do I have that right? So you're not agreeing. And you must do this before you start defending. Because the person has to feel that they've been heard. And you need to know that you've been heard before you really start working together to try and resolve it. So the way it looks when you do it is something like this. You've got, it's, I use the phrase, wash, rinse, and repeat. Because it's a continual cycle. And watch this cool thing that Candace put on here. I really like this. Watch this. Isn't that cool? Huh? Candace, you're awesome. That's Candace's work right there. Um, you reflect, you acknowledge, and you confirm. And then you do that again. You reflect, you acknowledge, and you confirm. And that way, you're having a discussion where you're really talking about what is, at, is happening there, not assumptions, 
not misunderstandings. You are understanding and they are understanding you. And then you can get after trying to resolve the difference that is really there. And this results in a learning conversation. Again, we go back to the same refrain, having a learning conversation instead of having a message delivery conversation. Okay? So now let's move on. Tool number four, blame versus contribution. What are we talking about here? We all know what blame is. Blame is what most of us use all the time. It's your fault. Uh, you screwed up. You caused this problem to happen. It's blame. It's pure message delivery. It looks to the past, not the future. It results always and only in a message delivery conversation. It's your fault. There's no learning there. There's no curiosity there. It's clearly your fault. You're the one to blame. No learning. On the other hand, contribution. What does that mean? Contribution means we're going to look at the contribution that each person involved in the situation did that caused the result. The result may have been a good result. The result may have been a bad result. But we're going to look at each person's contribution, including mine, as to what I actually did and what I could have done better to either avoid this result that happened or have this result happen 10 times bigger next time because it was a great result. When you engage in that sort of a discussion, it is forward-looking, and it always results in a learning conversation. And what it does is it completely changes the dynamics of the discussion as to what happened and why. And contribution doesn't only apply to people's actions. It also applies to what did the circumstances contribute. We lost the deal last week. And Joe was the head deal maker. So obviously it must be Joe's fault. Uh, well, Joe had some contribution. And Joe can discuss what he believed to be his contribution. But perhaps Joe's boss had contribution too because he didn't give Joe the resources that Joe really needed or could have used better to try and land this client or close this deal. Or maybe Joe needed more training. Or maybe the person uh, who assists Joe over here could have done a better job doing their job that would have helped Joe out. Or maybe the time frame was so tight that there's no way this thing had a realistic chance of happening. Or the resources were so scarce that there's really very little chance that this could have happened. All of those are contributing factors that when you look at it that way, you're in it together as a team. And what it encourages is transparency. It gets away from spinning, where you have a feeling of, if I can just kind of shuck and jive and avoid you know, the spotlight, and oh, it's all James's fault. Whew, good, wow, I'm glad they didn't look at what I could have done differently here. Yeah, it's all James, oh James, bad James, bad James. 
Um, that's the way it works when you live in a blame team or a blame culture, whether it's at home or at work or wherever, as opposed to a contribution culture where it's, we're all in this together and nobody's perfect. So let's fess up here and let's put on the table what we did and what we could have done better and what the circumstances were so we could really have a learning conversation and leave here either doing better what we did previously or doing a lot more of it so that we get this result again and again. So now, go to your worksheet. This is getting to be a refrain I hope you realize here. For each of your examples, note how you're using blame and note how you might instead use contribution. I'll give you a few minutes to do that. How many of you, again, I'm sorry to have to cut your time short uh, as we move forward here, but how many of you see the difference as you're looking through your examples that having blame as a mindset versus contribution as a mindset applies and helps reshape how you think about this conflict? Raise your hands if this has made a a difference to you as you think about it, okay? When you go home, think about the examples if you didn't have time to do it for all your examples and what the contributions can be, including your own contribution, heavily your own contribution, as well as others' contribution. It might be beyond the person with whom you're having the dispute. There might be other players involved who are uh, exacerbating the conflict, or who need to be involved to have the conflict resolved. They're contributors. So if you want to resolve this conflict, you really need to understand uh, the various contributing factors, including your own contribution. Okay, let's move on to tool number five. Intention versus impact. The key thing about intention versus impact is that Intentions are invisible. They are invisible. Who has ever seen an intention? No one has. How do we deal with intentions? We attribute intentions to someone based on the action that we either are seeing or experiencing. Intention is always inferred from action. And it's how we go about trying to explain why things happen and why things happen to us, is trying to attribute intentions. And attribution mistakes are so common because we don't know what's going on in the other person's head. All we know is what happened to us. We know the impact. We don't know what the intention was. But if it's an adverse impact, you can be sure that the first thought that comes to our mind is, it was a bad intention. They intended to hurt us, or they were just negligent, or they're careless, or they are whatever they are that lines up with the impact that we felt. And we all make the fundamental attribution error. And what this refers to is, that we all have 
an incredible amount of self-bias. We are always viewing things from our perspective in a way that makes us look right and the other person look wrong. And a great example of the fundamental attribution error is when you're driving on the freeway and the person in front of you cuts in front of you, the lane in front of you, and what do you say? What a jerk. I mean, where did that woman learn how to drive? Or where did that guy learn how to drive? What is going on with him? How did they allow them on the road? What a jerk, right? And then you keep on driving, and you're talking to the passenger next to you, and your exit comes up, and you just glide over to do it, and the guy in the lane next to you is on his horn. And you're going, what is wrong with you, buddy? You didn't have to slow down at all. What are you making such a big deal out of this? There wasn't any trouble that you had. So what is your problem? Why are you causing this? Why are you disturbing me like this with that haunt, right? When I do it, circumstances justify it. There's always a good reason. When the other person does it, they're a jerk, the intention was clearly bad, that's the fundamental attribution error. And we need to be very well aware of it. So how do we deal with this? We must separate intention from impact. We must separate intention from impact. And that is, if I've been adversely affected by somebody, I am the expert on impact. I know what the impact was, but I don't know what the intention was. The person who did it is the expert on the intention. And we need to have a learning conversation for that person to understand what the impact is, and I need to have a learning conversation with them to understand what their intention was. How did this come to be? What was going on here? And so what often happens is the person who caused the harm says, what is wrong with you? I didn't do anything. Why are you feeling the way you did? That's ridiculous. And the person who has been impacted is saying, you don't know how this thing affected me. What are you talking about? It's because the person who's the expert on attention is trying to tell the person who's an expert on impact what the impact is. That doesn't work. The flip side of that is the person who was impacted says, what a jerk you were. You are so inconsiderate. You're so mean and cruel to have done what you did. They're saying, you don't know what was going on in my mind. Why don't you give me a chance to talk about it? I don't need to. You know what you did to me. And you know that, that, that you had to have done blah, 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 because blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to make myself the expert on intention when I'm only the expert on impact. And this happens all the time and is such a, a divisive thing when it happens and so unhelpful for conflict, healthy conflict resolution. So there's a metaphor that I love that helps us deal with this. And that is, and I brought some props here. I threw a cotton ball. That's all I did. I threw a cotton ball, and you felt that you were hit by a rock. So my intention was, I was just throwing a cotton ball. What I did was a nothing. 
I, I didn't think it was anything. I'm just throwing a cotton ball, big cotton ball, but I'm throwing a cotton ball. And the other person is saying, it didn't feel like a cotton ball to me. It felt like a rock. It was a rock you threw. No, it wasn't a rock I threw. I threw a cotton ball. No, it wasn't. You threw a rock. No, you didn't feel hit by a rock. I threw a cotton ball. You felt hit by a cotton ball. No, 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 it was a rock. You can see how ridiculous that discussion goes because we're not learning from each other. We're not listening to each other. And we're trying to attribute intentions to the other person that we have no way of knowing. And the other person is questioning the impact in a way that they have no right to question. So we need to uh, separate intention versus impact. And we need to have a learning conversation to try and understand and accurately determine what was the impact and what was the intention. So on your worksheet, <laughs> for each of your examples, note what intentions you are attributing to the other party. I'll give you a couple minutes. Do you see, as you write down those intentions, how you are attributing those intentions? You don't know what the intentions were of that other person or people that you're having with whom you're having a dispute. You're attributing. You might be right. Sometimes our attributions are spot on. But it is not going to be a helpful way of moving closer to resolving that conflict in a healthy way without having a learning conversation to try and understand how did this come to be? What, what was going on that caused you to do what you did? And it's very helpful to not use the why word. Why did you do that? The why word almost always results in defensiveness because the assumption when you use the why word is that you don't believe it or you don't agree with it. Instead of help me to understand how this came about or what was the thinking behind what you did or what drove this action on your part. Those are all ways of asking the why question without using the why word. Why is really not a helpful word if you want to step into difficult situations and try and have a, a, as good a possible uh, learning conversation. Okay, so now, here's a summary of the tools we've discussed so far. These are the five tools that we have discussed tonight. First one is the importance of a learning conversation as opposed to a message delivery conversation. And as you can see, as we went through all of these five tools, all of these tools lead toward learning. They lead toward more understanding. They're based on curiosity instead of hubris. Curiosity instead of hubris. They result in learning conversations. We learned about the use of the third story with a beautiful woman as, a, as part of that effort. Um, and that is so important is to start with the use of the third story instead of coming out with guns blazing 
with your perspective or the other person coming with guns blazing with their perspective. And then we talked about the criticality of reflecting back and acknowledging. Reflecting back and acknowledging even when you don't agree and even when you think they are dead wrong. No judgment. Just reflect back and acknowledge and ensure understanding and show respect in the process. And then contribution versus blame. And we've talked at length about that. The importance of having the benefit, the future thinking, the forward thinking, the learning conversation that goes along with having a contribution mindset as opposed to a blame mindset. And then the last one we talked about is intention versus impact. And the criticality of separating intention on the one hand, impact on the other hand, and have a learning conversation on both sides to better understand the impact, better understand the intention, and remember the metaphor of I threw a cotton ball and you got hit, you felt like you were hit by a rock. I threw a cotton ball and you felt you were hit by a rock. When you think about that, you will see how often that applies in your life situations where someone did something that they had no way in the world to think that that was going to adversely impact you like it did. And yet it did. Okay, we're now going to move toward conflict resolution. We've talked about tools that can help us in that journey. We've talked about the importance of learning conversations that are critical in terms of constructive change and working together. We're now going to talk about a very important topic that the Bible speaks loudly to. And that is apology, forgiveness, reconciliation. The journey of conflict resolution is transformational. How we do it transforms us. It either makes us into smaller, more inward-focused people, or it turns us into more gentle, outward-focused, loving, reconciling, peacemaking kind of people. It's transformation, uh, transformational one way or the other. So the first thing we're going to look at, we're going to look at each of these three things, apology, forgiveness, and reconciliation. First thing we're going to look at is apology. And take a look at this and tell me what your thoughts are about whether this is a good apology. George, thanks for coming on to talk to me. I wanted to see you right away, but my hours here aren't very flexible. I just started yesterday. Well, I'm here. What is it? Well, I talked to my sponsor, and uh, I've thought it over, and, you know, my apology at the coffee shop was sarcastic and rude, and you deserve much better. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Can I get a triple Minuteman mint? Waffle or sugar cone? Uh, excuse me, uh, um, Jason. <laughs> I don't want to get into a big thing here, but... I'm not sure if technically what you just said was actually an apology. What? Can you get on that cone? 
Would you hang on just a second, son? George, what are you talking about? Well, it's just all you said was you're welcome, which is nice, it's very nice, but I feel I gotta get the apology. Is there anybody else here but you? I'm alone, and it's my second day, and you know, I don't even think we have that flavor. So, George, really, enough, okay? You know, I admitted I was wrong. What more do you want from me? I would like an apology. All right, look, you know. Did you try it? No, Scott doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay, I'm interacting with someone here, if you can understand that. Now, I'm sorry. Ah, there it is. You just said it. That's what I want. Now, say it again and tell it to me. I'm not saying anything. I'm not sorry. I was never sorry. It was cashmere. I hate step nine. Where's that rum raisin? There it is. Can't find anything. I need it. Daiquiri ice, here we go. What are you looking at? Get out! Come on, can't you see we're close? Get out! Uh, great apology, right? Not, but I love Seinfeld, and I love George, and if you didn't recognize that, that was James Spader at an early age. Guy from the blacklist at a very early age. Um, so what makes a good apology and what is an ineffective apology? Let's walk through it. Effective apology acknowledges the offense and its impact. I did something wrong, I hurt you, and I know by what I said, it hurt you, and I know it hurt you, and I am so sorry for that. Oftentimes, it it is helpful to offer an explanation. It's not a justification. It's an explanation that says, when I said that to you yesterday, I'd had three hours of sleep. That doesn't justify what I said. What I said was wrong. I just want you to understand that that's not what I would say if I had had more sleep. I was just beat. I was really under a lot of pressure, and what I said was wrong, and I just want you to understand what the circumstances were. It clearly communicates remorse. I am so very sorry for what I did. And it offers reparations if possible. Sometimes reparations or amends are not possible because what you did, there are no reparations or amends. But oftentimes there are. It may not be a direct repair, but it can be a symbolic sort of repair. It can be a symbolic gesture that you make to, again, drive home the fact of how sorry you are and how much you regret having caused the pain or hurt or damage that you caused. And you have to make sure that you use the proper time and setting. It's not a drive-by apology. And it's not said right when the person is moving into an important meeting or uh, the baby is crying in the other room or whatever it might be that is causing, what was this thing still on? Yeah, okay. Uh, is causing uh, distractions or a lot of stress for the person involved. You have to pick the right time and the right setting. On the flip side of that, which uh, Jason in this uh, little skit clearly recognized and acted out, is a vague or incomplete acknowledgement. I'm not really sorry. Or I apologize for whatever I did. You know, I apologize for whatever I did. If that makes you feel happy, fine. I apologize for whatever I did. 
or the use of the passive voice. I love the passive voice. Mistakes may have been made here. <laughs> Mistakes may have been made. Passive voice is such a wonderful thing. It completely disowns any ownership by anyone. They're just kind of, the, the mistakes are kind of floating out there and somehow they were made. I, don't ask me, they were made. Or we make the offense conditional. If I offended you, if mistakes were made, right? How does that feel when someone says that to you and, and they think they're apologizing? Um, or we minimize the offense. And we question whether the victim was damaged. If this hurt you, minimizing the offense. There's really nothing to apologize for here, but you know, if you were really offended, I apologize. I can't understand how you could have been offended by this, but I apologize for it, of course. Sincere, sincerely apologizing if there was anything happened to you. You know, it was really a cotton ball and I don't know what you're talking about. So. Um, or if we offer it to a third party. You go to the friend of the person that you offended and you say, you know, I really feel badly about what I did to Frank yesterday. You know, I feel, I, I really, um, maybe you can pass on to him, I really, you know. I feel really bad about that. Uh, uh, ineffective apology. It is often so helpful to ask the person at the end of a time when you are trying to apologize something to the effect of, did that get it? I mean, do you feel now that I really have apologized to you? Is there something missing? Is there anything missing? because I really want you to know that I am sorry and I want you to feel the sincerity of my apology. Is there anything missing? And it might be, yes, there is. I want to understand why you did what you did. I mean, how could you do that? Help me understand that more. Uh, or it might be some other question. Or it might be, no, I get it. Thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate that apology. But then you are really covering ground to ensure that what you are trying to communicate in terms of an apology is really received that way. Okay? I'm going to move on to forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the most misunderstood and one of the most important topics in our lives. Uh, whenever I talk to a group or I am mediating an emotional situation, there is no issue that goes to the heart, slices to the heart of the matter more quickly and more deeply than when we start talking about forgiveness. Because in our lives, we all feel like there are situations where someone has owes us an apology, someone needs to forgive us. We need to be forgiven and we haven't been. Or we realize we need to forgive. I mean, I'm holding such hard feelings, such bitterness towards this person, I just can't forgive them. 
and yet I know the damage that this is doing to me, but I just can't do it. I can't do it. It strikes right to our heart because forgiveness deals with wounds, with acts that have really hurt us, or we have hurt someone else, and it cuts right to our heart. There are many definitions of forgiveness, and there are many of them. This one is one that I like because it's simple and it captures the essence of forgiveness, and that is the intentional act of releasing our malice toward the wrongdoer. The intentional act of releasing our malice toward the wrongdoer. It means that we are no longer hoping that bad things happen to this person, <laughs> that the world will cave in on them because they deserve to have the world cave in on them because of what they did. Forgiveness is often mistakenly thought that it's going to happen at one time. I forgive you. It's done. We move on. Rarely does that happen. Sometimes it does, but rarely does that happen. Ordinarily, it's a journey of many steps rather than a single act. It can take many steps of a release, and then a further release, and then a further release. So recognize that forgiveness oftentimes is not going to be a, okay, if I forgive them, then I've totally cleansed all malice from my thinking about this person. It may be partially released. It may be as forgiveness as much as you can give at that moment. And maybe later you can give more and more and more as you go on. But it's a journey often. And it benefits the forgiver regardless of the knowledge of or impact on the forgiven. In other words, we can forgive. The person may never know that we forgave. We might be forgiving our mother who's deceased for the terrible things that she did to me or my father for the terrible things he did to me, or a friend that I'm not going to see anymore, either because they've died or they've moved away or whatever, and the betrayal that that friend did for me. I'm going to forgive them. They may never even know it. And forgiveness, and this is the critical point for people sitting in this room who are either followers of Jesus or are thinking about following Jesus, is that it's critical for a Jesus follower. There are few topics in the Bible that get focus like forgiveness. The importance of being forgiven, completely undeservedly being forgiven. Amazing grace for a wretch like me. Amazing grace for a wretch like me. Forgiveness, totally undeserved and the importance therefore because I've been forgiven, not deserving it, to forgive others, to forgive others, to extend that forgiveness that God has granted to me to those that have offended or caused, excuse me, <coughs> caused me damage. Let's take a look at just two uh, verses in Matthew that talk about this. 
in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. So what is that trying to communicate? It is trying to communicate that you don't just forgive once. You forgive, and you forgive again, and you forgive again, and you forgive again, because it's a reflection of God's forgiveness of us, where we undeservedly get forgiveness again and again, and again, and again. And yet we hold out forgiving our brother or sister, or we set some arbitrary limit that I'll forgive you seven times, but that's it. Jesus says 70 times, seven times. And then, right after Jesus sets out in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, where he says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And right after that, right after he talks about laying out what he's setting up as the model prayer, in verse 14, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is serious business. And Jesus takes the issue of forgiveness very, very seriously. Because it is, he knows, he designed us, the, the Trinity, God built us, designed us. He knows what the adverse impact is on us as individuals and on us in our relationships when there is a, a heart of unforgiveness. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So what are the benefits of forgiveness? Forgiveness liberates and heals our wounded soul. It liberates and heals our wounded soul. It allows us to step out of the past it allows us to step forward from that terrible thing, whatever it may have been, that affected us. And we'll talk about what forgiveness is not in a minute, because you'll see that clearly forgiveness does not mean to forget. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But it allows us and liberates to heal our soul. And importantly, it releases us from the continued power of the wrongdoer. When we are unforgiving, we replay in our mind that bad thing that that person did to us. And every time we replay it in our mind with, with an attitude of malice towards that other person, it allows that wrongdoer to continue to have power over us. We are reliving again. He or she is hurting us again as deeply or more deeply because now it's continued to be magnified and it's combined with all my feelings of hatred and resentment and desire for revenge and it is destroying us in that process. And it releases us from that continued power. It is liberating. It is freeing. 
It makes us more empathetic and draws us closer to people when we are forgiving. And it turns our attention away from the past and toward the future and others. Now, believe me, I know from both personal experience and in dealing in so many conflict situations that this is not something where you go, oh, okay, good, I'm going to go out and forgive them. Forgiveness is oftentimes extremely difficult, seemingly impossible. And yet it is not impossible. It is an act that you can take without any reciprocation by the person that you are forgiving to free yourself from the power of that wrongdoer in your life, to honor your walk as a follower of Jesus, to honor the way he has designed us so that we are not eaten up by that spirit of unforgiveness. So let's talk about for a minute what forgiveness does not mean. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting the offense. Talked about that. I hate it when people say, just forgive and forget. You don't forget. You don't forget. But your memory can be a redeemed memory. It can be a memory that has led to a release of malice as you think back on it. And you release, you drain out the poison of the power of that. It doesn't mean that you excuse the act. By forgiving the person, it doesn't mean that what they did was right. It was terribly wrong. I'm not going to excuse it, but I'm going to forgive it. It does not mean that you have to accept a justification for the act to forgive. It does not mean that you don't believe that punishment is still appropriate. Punishment may well be appropriate. If that person raped you, punishment is appropriate for that person. And yet you can still forgive in that situation. Unbelievably hard. And I don't pretend to say anything other than that. Seemingly impossible. But the lack of forgiveness eats at you and eats at you. It does not mean that you don't think that the person who did this to you is deserving of punishment. It's just you're not going to harbor that malice. You're not going to be the one that feels like, I've got to administer that punishment. I'm going to go after and show that person uh, what they deserve or give that person what he deserves or she deserves. It does not mean that you have to resume the relationship. That's the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean I have to resume that relationship. I may not be able to resume that relationship. Person may have died. Person may have moved away. Person may have remarried. I can't resume that relationship. But I can still forgive. It does not mean that I have to receive an apology first before I can forgive. And how many of us think that that's the case? Okay, I'll consider forgiving them, but they have to apologize to me first. Again, all you're doing when you're saying that is you're giving more power to the wrongdoer again. Now it's up to them again. Your well-being is now again in their hands instead of in your own hands. And you don't have to face the wrongdoer to forgive him or her. 
You don't need to say it to the person. You can forgive the person without doing it in person to them. And in some cases, you may not be able to do it, even if you wanted to, in person to them. Whatever the path you take, forgiveness is a transformational act. It's a transformational act. So what happens when you choose to not forgive? Because not forgiving is also a transformational act. What does it do? Well, there's a couple of Chinese sayings that I love. We lived six years in, in Hong Kong, and there's a lot of wisdom uh, in the Chinese culture. And two sayings really hit me hard. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink, thinking that it is killing the other person. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink, thinking that it's killing the other person. And another saying is, a journey of revenge starts by digging two graves. Two graves, mine and the other person. Because it is going to cost me dearly, me dearly, in terms of my well-being, my emotional health, my relational health, to go on a journey of revenge. I better dig two graves before I start that. And what are the effects of a hardened heart? A hardened heart, unforgiveness, affects me in ways that I'm not even aware. It begins to grow a root of separation, of judgment, of bitterness, of self-righteousness, of inward focus. I want to thank my friend Ryan Payton, who's sitting right up here in front. We were talking this week, and he said, Michael, you ought to take a look at uh, Bruce Wilkinson's uh, book and series that he has on a book that he wrote called 70 Times 7, Finding Peace by Forgiving Yourself and Others. So I haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, but I went online and looked over some of the materials, and it's incredibly sound and helpful material that I, I recommend highly to you. There's three DVDs, and there's eight sessions, and there's a workbook. And he goes into great detail, detailing the psychological damage that occurs to us when we continue to live with a state of unforgiveness. Let's move on to reconciliation, which is the ultimate journey. Again, reconciliation is widely misunderstood. The possibilities for reconciliation include a broad spectrum of healing and closeness. It can range from a complete restoration of a relationship to mere tolerance of the other. Reconciliation might look like, well, at least I can be in the same room as him now. Or I can stay in the church now. It may mean that I'm willing to see this person once a month. It may mean that I'm now willing to have coffee with this person. It may mean that I'm willing to share certain parts of my life again with this person. It may mean a complete restoration 
back in relationship with this person. It can mean a whole lot of things. And reconciliation reshapes our character. It's a transformational process. But importantly, and this is where it's often misunderstood, it requires participation by both parties. Unlike forgiveness or an apology, which doesn't require both parties, reconciliation requires both parties. So one party may be all ready to reconcile in whatever fashion, whatever that might look like, and the other party saying, no dice. I don't want any part of this. You can only play your side of the net. And in Romans, Paul makes really clear that insofar as you are able, be at peace with your brother or sister. Insofar as you are able, play your side of the net. You can't play the other side of the net. And with reconciliation, you've got players on both sides of the net. So sometimes reconciliation can't happen because the other one simply doesn't want it or doesn't want it to the extent you want it. They want to restore the intimacy again and you're willing to be in the same room with them. Requires both parties' participation and agreement to reconcile. And in the case of reconciliation, a third party mediator can often play a critical role. Oftentimes you are really at odds with someone and yet you want to reconcile. And the other person also may want to reconcile. I've just recently, just this week, been called in with two very high profile individuals who for many, many years cared deeply about each other and yet through some recent events are now at complete loggerheads with one another. And they need to have a third party to come in to help them sort through it. And oftentimes that's needed. And don't shy away from that. Find a trusted third party, or at least a neutral third party that both you and the other party can agree can be involved in trying to find common ground, trying to have learning conversations so you can better understand each other and what went on here. Don't overlook the idea of bringing in a third party with the idea of, Oh, brother, I don't want somebody else to know about this. This isn't about gossip. This is about bringing in someone to help facilitate the possibility of reconciliation. And very often it requires a third party. So with reconciliation, do you want to go there? It's a choice. Do you want to go there? Conflict in relationship is inevitable. And managing it well will provide you with more peace, more freedom, and more possibilities. And deciding the direction that you want to go with regard to reconciliation or not reconciling is going to be transformational to you. So now, exercise three on your worksheet. Write down one step that you will take on each of the three conflicts that you've been working on. Maybe it's apology. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's some step toward reconciliation in some fashion.
I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. Jesus calls us to a standard of facing and resolving conflict well. Crystal clear how important this is to Jesus and to God is facing and resolving conflict well. How we choose to deal with conflict transforms us one way or the other. And applying the tools that we have discussed today will help you greatly. They may seem awkward at first. They may seem awkward for a little while, but they will help you greatly. And we've just covered a few of the tools. Pick up a copy of this book, both books, but pick up a copy of this book and read it and apply it to the situations you face. Use and apply your worksheets and the learnings that you wrote down there. And know that in, with regard to your ability to become a better conflict resolver, there is hope. There is hope in the midst of conflicts that you think are purely irreconcilable. There is hope. I have seen it when I'm mediating disputes where the two parties come in and say, there's no way. I mean, I'll go through this, but there is no way. And it's not because I'm a genius or some miracle worker. It's because you go step by step by step through a learning conversation and you try and you move forward and you pray for the condition of your heart as you do it and you move towards some form of reconciliation. So I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak with you tonight. Thank you for the time you've taken to come here. I also want to thank Candace, who's down here in front, for all the work she put in in pulling together the technical part of this, as well as Kayla Berry, who's now vacationing and enjoying Europe, but she was also very helpful in pulling this together. So thank you very much for your time.